Genesis. Continuing in Genesis, we're chapter 44. We're getting near the end. There's 50 chapters in Genesis, so we're getting near the end. Um, and in, I'll tell you, I'll get you caught up if you haven't been here in a while, or like, you know, kind of where we're at in it. We're still in the middle of Joseph's story, and we're actually still in the middle of the story of Joseph's brothers coming from Egypt, from land of Canaan to Egypt to get grain. They're in the middle of their second trip, right? They've already taken one trip. Now they're in the middle of their second trip. And there's some, you know, bit of me that, that wants to like speed it up. Like, come on, let's get through. Like, I wanted to kind of, what if I just combine these chapters and do, a, you know, kind of all together? Like, that's basically the same story. Let's just get through it. But here's the thing. The Bible does this sometimes where it, it speeds up and slows down the action with how much detail and how much time it takes to tell a certain part of the story. Um, and it does that for a reason. It does that for a reason. There are you know, hundreds of years that are skipped at different points. Um, and then there's this, where there's like, this is two days, now it's two chapters in, in the course of like a, day, a night and a day, and it just keeps going. And you're like, why couldn't we just speed it up? Well, no, God's got something in there for us. There's a reason that the action slows down like that and takes so much detail, so much time in explaining this. And in this case, it's because this is telling the story of Joseph's reconciliation with his brothers, which is a big deal. It's a big deal. It's a big deal for for them. It was a big deal. It's a big deal for us because family conflict is one of the biggest things that we struggle with. Probably no one in here has a family where you'd say, we have no, we have zero family conflict, right? There's no family members that we don't talk to anymore. There's no family members that we avoid. Uh, there's no family members that we, you know, talk bad about or, or there's two that are feuding, right? It, it happens all the time. And so there's a reason that God spends so much time talking about this because it's something that we deal with. Um, and it's something Joseph's dealing with here because Joseph, if you remember, was sold into slavery by his brothers, right? As a, and that was the better option because they were going to kill him. Right, so they decide, no, we'll just sell him off into, into slavery in Egypt. He goes there, spends 13 years either as a slave or as a prisoner, and then he ascends to the rank of number two in the, all of Egypt. Pharaoh's right-hand man, really, Pharaoh just delegates everything to him. He has this whole plan to overcome the seven-year famine that's coming that God had revealed to him. And now his brothers have come to Egypt because the famine hit them. And they, gotta get, they want to get grain. And the first time, they don't recognize him, but he recognizes them. And why would they recognize him? They wouldn't expect him to be in that position. And now they've come a second time, and as Jason talked about last week, it's a great reception, right? He welcomes them. He sets Simeon free. He's, he gives them a big feast. And he kind of starts to set the stage for this test of how are you, have you guys changed or not? He starts to set that stage by giving Benjamin a bigger portion than anybody else. Benjamin, Joseph's only full brother, the baby of the family, and already set up to be the favorite son after Joseph was taken away, and as far as his father knows, was killed. He's set up to be the favorite son because he's the, he's the last son of his favorite wife, Rachel, the only wife that he intended to marry. So there's this whole thing being set up, and so we start off with, a further the setup Genesis 44 verses 1 through 13 then he commanded the steward of his house that's Joseph Joseph's commanding the steward of his house 
Fill the men's sacks with food as much as they can carry and put each man's money in the mouth of his sack and put my cup, the silver cup, in the mouth of the sack of the youngest with his money for the grain. And he did as Joseph told him. As soon as the morning was light, the men were sent away with their donkeys. They had gone only a short distance from the city. Now Joseph said to his steward, Up, follow after the men. And when you overtake them, say to them, Why have you repaid evil for good? Is it not from this that my Lord drinks, and by this that he practices divination? You have done evil in doing this. When he overtook them, he spoke to them these words. They said to him, Why does my Lord speak such words as these? Far be it from your servants to do such a thing. Behold, the money that we found in the mouths of our sacks we brought back to you from the land of Canaan. How then could we steal silver or gold from your Lord's house? Whichever of your servants is found with it shall die, and we also will be my Lord's servants. He said, Let it be as you say. He who is found with it shall be my servant, and the rest of you shall be innocent." Then each man quickly lowered his sack to the ground, and each man opened his sack. And he searched, beginning with the eldest and ending with the youngest. And the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. Then they tore their clothes, and every man loaded his donkey, and they returned to the city. Okay, so Joseph's continuing this calculated testing of his brothers. Right? He started it the night before by giving Benjamin uh, a much bigger portion than everybody else. He's starting to lay those seeds, see if that kind of resentment is still there. Um, and, and the brothers right there, they wake up the next morning. They're groggy. They're maybe even a little hungover. Right? They, they, they had a big feast. They're not used to eating so much, drinking so much. They're in the middle of a famine. Right? Certainly they're not used to feasting the way someone does uh, who, who's part of Pharaoh's court. Um, and they're eager to get back home, right? They want to get back home. It's the first light. They want to get back home. They've got wives. They've got kids. Uh, they've got servants and people with them in, 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 back at their camp that are starving, right? They're in the middle of a famine. And remember, from the, the time that jo- Jacob actually sent them last week, uh, they waited until all the food was gone. That's how fearful Jacob was to send them back. He waited until the food was gone. So all of their people, their entire journey, they're out of food. They're starving now. And, uh, and it worked out, right? It was great. They, they get there. They get a feast. They get uh, you know, bags full of food. They're ready to go. They wake up in the morning. Everything's packed already, right? Their, their, their donkeys are loaded up. The Joseph's servants had, had prepared everything. All they got to do is hop on and ride. Man, as somebody who spent uh, uh, two weeks loading and unloading the back of a van, that'd be great, right? To just get in the car and just drive. It's all loaded up already for you. Right? They're ready. They're like, great, let's go. Right? They don't have to do anything. Um, and, and, and further in the, the calculatedness of this, of this testing, he, Joseph uses the silver cup. Remember, he had been sold for silver. He had been sold into Egypt into slavery with silver. Now he's using silver in this testing. That's not a coincidence, right? He's doing this. He's being very calculated. He wants to draw their minds back to that moment. He wants to set up the same situation that he was in. And so the, the, the brothers get accused. They get run, run down by the steward. They get accused of, um, of, of the stealing. And they're like, this is crazy. We wouldn't do this, right? They're indignant, 
The accusation is preposterous. Why would they, they return the money that they took before? Right? They were, Joseph, the first time, sent them back. He didn't take their money. He put it in their sacks, sent them back. They were afraid, oh, what is he, you know, there was some kind of oversight. We didn't pay for the food. So they brought double the money when they came back. And they go, we returned the money that we got last time. Why? Why would we do this now? Why would we steal money now? And so they make this grand offer of whoever you find it with can die. And the rest of us, if you find somebody with it, kill that guy, the rest of us will be your servants. They're so confident that none of them slipped up. And so the steward, he, he walks down their offer. Right? He's like, okay, no, nobody needs to die, but whoever I find with it, he's going to become the servant. He's going to become a slave in Egypt. The rest of you can, will be free to go. So you see that Joseph's orchestrated this perfect setup. He's perfectly orchestrated the situation uh, to recreate the circumstances of his own childhood. To recreate the circumstances in which he was sold into slavery. Because Benjamin's the new favorite. He's the youngest. He's the baby of the family. The only remaining child of Rachel. Um, his, his favoritism would have been crazy high after Joseph was killed. Right? We even know when he first sent the brothers to Egypt, he kept Benjamin back. And so Joseph re- even reignites that by treating him with favoritism at the banquet the night before. Right, he kind of bu- bu- bumps that up a little bit just to bring it, make it fresh in their minds. And, um, and now Joseph knows that Benjamin's going to be the one that's caught with the cup. So he sets this up ahead of time. Probably told his steward, hey, tell him that whoever we find it with, he's going to become a slave, slave here. You can leave him as a slave. And so they, he sets up this perfectly orchestrated thing and now it's, it's happened. Now they, they actually get to it. They find it. They go, he's the guy. And so he's got to come back and be a slave. The brothers are free to go from that moment on. Right? They're free to go right, right now. So even right now, we know, hey, they're at least standing with Benjamin to begin with. Right? Because they tear their clothes. Right? They're distraught over this turn of events. And if, if again, this is calling back to the fact that when Joseph disappeared, they didn't tear their clothes. They tore his clothes. And then when they told their father, Jacob tore his clothes. He's the only one that did. In Genesis 37, go back, verses 32 and 34. They sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father and said, This we have found. Please identify whether it is your son's robe or not. And he identified it and said, It is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without doubt torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his garments and put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son many days. So they returned, they tear their clothes, they return to the palace with, Jake, with uh, Benjamin. Something's at least different. Something has changed in them. Because they could have left, they had good reason to do so, right? Their families are starving back home. They got to get that food back home. They could have sent just a couple of the brothers to try to fight for his case and sent most of them back, right? But they all come back. They're all distraught over this and presumably benjamin's guilty they don't know for sure that benjamin's not guilty of this it's possible so now we get to the choice they got the setup it's all orchestrated now they have a choice to make genesis 44 verses 14 through 17 when judah and his brothers came to joseph's house he was still there they fell before him to the ground and joseph said to them what deed is this that you have done 
Do you not know that a man like me can indeed practice divination? And Judah said, What shall we say to my Lord? What shall we speak? Or how can we clear ourselves? God has found out the guilt of your servants. Behold, we are my Lord's servants, both we and he also in whose hand the cup has been found. But he said, Far be it from me that I should do so. Only the man in whose hand the cup was found shall be my servant. But as for you, go up in peace to your father. So right away, they, they get in the palace. They fall to the ground in front of him. They bow down in front of him. And, he, and this is now the third time that the brothers have bowed to Joseph, each time more emphatically, each time with more, greater emphasis. The first time they come before him just as a normal oh, he, he's just a normal Lord, and so we're just going to pay our respects. Second time, they're coming back. They, they're, one of their brothers is kept captive there. They're, uh, you know, they're bringing the money back. They're, they have some room for fear there, so they bow before him. And now, they're, they're groveling before him. Right? They're, they're, this, the third time they bowed to him, his prophetic dream has been fulfilled. Right? Remember, as a child, God revealed to Joseph, hey, your brothers will bow to you. Now it's definitely happened. It's not a small thing right, that this prophecy has been fulfilled in Joseph's life. Now Joseph makes this weird comment in there, I don't know if you noticed it, about uh, practicing divination with his cup. And it's a little troubling, right? Because you're like, divination, that's, practicing divination, that's like reading tea leaves and fortune telling, that kind of thing. It was a, a thing that they would do. It was certainly practiced in Egypt. But the question is like, did Joseph do that? Probably not. Probably not. Probably here he's playing the role of the Egyptian, uh, you know, oligarch, the, the Egyptian ruler, and who's saying, oh yeah, you know, that's what, that's what would have happened. It, it raises the value of the cup, right? It raises the the, the grade of the offense by making the cup more valuable. Um, and, and so it, it makes it seem uh, real, but, but it's likely he didn't do that because all throughout, up to this point, every time we're, we're in Joseph's head, every time Joseph's speaking, he's saying, no, my interpretations come from God. God's the one that interprets. I don't interpret dreams. God reveals their interpretations to me. I don't really do anything. God's the one. He's constantly giving God the credit before. So the idea that he would now have drifted and started practicing divination, Egyptian divination, is highly unlikely. That's probably not what's going on here. <coughs> it's also specifically later forbidden in, in Leviticus verse uh, 19, or chapter 19, verse 26, says, you shall not eat any flesh with the blood in it. You shall not interpret omens or tell fortunes. It's, that's divination. He's saying, you know, we don't do that. That's not something that, that God does it and joseph here thus far is is a man after god's heart we don't think he would actually do that so now we see uh judas step up right he steps up he's he's going to be the spokesperson he's he's going to be the mouthpiece here for them and he declares god has found out the guilt of your servants he says god has found out the guilt of your servants that's a weird thing for him to say in this instance in this moment, that's a weird thing for him to say because he doesn't think that he doesn't think Benjamin's guilty. He knows he's not guilty of this. He knows he didn't steal the cup. He really doesn't think Benjamin did. He doesn't think any of the brothers did, right? He, so he's admitting guilt. Is he admitting to guilt? Something that he didn't actually do. He doesn't think they actually did. No, he's not admitting that guilt, right? When he's saying God has found out the guilt of your servants. 
he's in his mind calling back to their guilt regarding Joseph. Right? He's recognizing the fact that even though they're not guilty of this, they're guilty. They're guilty. Right? Years ago, I, uh, I got a speeding ticket. Years ago. Um, when I was in college. Um, and I really, really don't think I was speeding. I really don't think I was. I thought I was innocent. But I didn't really bother to fight the ticket because I do speed. Right? Like, I, I know I've done it in the past. So it's not like, yeah, I, maybe I wasn't guilty in this instance, but am I guilty of it? Yeah. So I paid it. You know, like I paid it, did, the, did all the things. You know, it wasn't a crazy amount anyway. But that's kind of the, the, the case with us, right? Where it's like, you know, sometimes you get caught doing something, you're like, well, you're wrong. I'm not guilty in this instance, but am I guilty of that? Yes. Right? Like, that's, yes, I am guilty. And so that's what's happening here, right? They're going like, well, I wasn't, Joseph, Judah's really being convicted of, we're, we may not be guilty of this, but we're guilty. Right? He's acknowledging before Joseph and before God their guilt on a greater level than just in this instance. But Joseph declines, declines his, and, and so in that he offers for us, all, he's like, let us all become your servants. Right? We're all guilty, let us all stay here and be servants, not just Joseph. We're all guilty. Or not just Benjamin. We're all guilty. But Joseph declines the offer. He's like, no, 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 no. Just the guy who is actually guilty, he's the one that's guilty. The rest of you, go in peace to your father. Go in peace to your father. He gives them that option. And here's the thing. is, I, I really believe, in reading this, that this is a genuine offer from Joseph. He is... He, he was fine with that outcome, because think about it. If, if they go, oh, really? We can leave little baby brother, favorite, daddy's favorite, we can leave him here, and we can all go back with all the food? If they were like, great, okay, bye, and they like head back to Canaan, and Benjamin's there, what's Joseph going to do? He's going to tell Benji, come here, buddy, it's me. Right, he, and they're going to, and, and now Benjamin's not going to actually be a slave or a servant. He's going to be Joseph's brother again. And they're going to start a new life in Egypt. And, and for Joseph, that's fine, right? And, and pff, evil brothers, say la vie. Don't come back asking for more food. Tell you that, right? But like, he's going to let him go. He's actually going to let him go. He's, he's like, let's let this real option happen. And even in that, we could even... We could even speculate, could God have started over with Joseph and Benjamin? Yeah, he could have. They carry the promises of Abraham. He could have started over. They could have been a totally different, totally different bloodline, totally different things that would happen out of that, but it could have happened, right? It could have happened. That could have been how it worked out. It's very, very possible that was a real chance, real moment where the, the choices they made changed how things played out. Now, one of the things we see throughout Joseph's story is that he's a forerunner of Jesus. Right? He, in a lot of ways, the life of Joseph parallels the life of Jesus and, and, and has certain elements in common with it. The things like um, that he was betrayed and sold for, for money. Right? He's, he's betrayed by people that are supposed to love him and, and sold off. Um, he, he, he goes to Egypt 
right? That's even, that's something that Jesus does when he's uh, two, right? He goes down to Egypt. <coughs> um, he, uh, they both start, Jesus started his ministry when he was 30. Joseph ascended to the throne when he was, or descended to his position of power when he was 30. It's, it's practically the throne at this point. Um, and there's tons more. There's, there's a, a huge list. I'm, I have a, there's a, a document on the info table if you want it uh, from the organization Jews for Jesus that um, has a big list and ways that, that, they, that they parallel, their lives parallel. But in this story and in this instance, it's actually going to be somebody else that is paralleling the life of Jesus. Um, Joseph's not going to be the Christ model. It's going to be Judah. And perhaps... What happens next is the reason that Jesus is ultimately born through the line of Judah. So let's get into this last section here, verses 18 through 34. Then Judah went up to him and said, O my Lord, please let your servant speak a word in my Lord's ears, and let not your anger burn against your servant, for you are like Pharaoh himself. My Lord asked his servants, saying, Have you a father or a brother? And we said to my Lord, We have a father, an old man, and a young brother, the child of his old age. His brother is dead, and he alone is left of his mother's children. And his father loves him. Then you said to your servants, Bring him down to me, that I may set my eyes on him. We said to my Lord, The boy cannot leave his father, for if he should leave his father, his father would die. Then you said to your servants, unless your youngest brother comes down with you, you shall not see my face again. When we went back to your servant, my father, we told the word, him the words of my Lord. And when our father said, go again, buy us a little food, we said, we cannot go down if our youngest brother goes, if our youngest brother goes with us, then we will go down. For we cannot see the man's face unless our, your, our youngest brother is with us. Then your servant, my father, said to us, You know that my wife bore me two sons. One left me, and I said, Surely he has been torn to pieces, and I have never seen him since. If you take this one also from me, and harm happens to him, you will bring down my gray hairs in evil to Sheol. Now therefore, as soon as I come to you, as soon as I come to your servant, my father, and the boy is not with us, then as his life is bound up in the boy's life, as soon as he sees that the boy is not with us, he will die. And your servants will bring down the gray hairs of your servant, our father, with sorrow to Sheol. For your servant became a pledge of safety for the boy to my father, saying, if I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father all my life. Now therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord and let the boy go back with his brothers. For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil that would find my father. All right, so this is basically just, a, just Judah giving a speech to, to Joseph here. He's coming before him. He's begging for Benjamin's return. And he re starts by recounting the history. He's saying, hey, remember, this is how it happened, that you asked us to bring Benjamin. Uh, our father didn't want him to come, didn't want us to, send, to, to bring him back. And... Uh, and and, he, and Joseph's finding out all this information, right? He finds out the fact that Jacob thinks that he's dead. That Jacob had grieved for Joseph. That Benjamin had become the favorite son, right? He's learning all these things. We also see that the brothers had, had, come, to term, to, had come to terms with their father's favoritism. 
or their father had favored Joseph. They resented it. They hated it. That's why they sold him into slavery. But in the years since, Benjamin had taken over that position of favorite son, of really unfair favoritism that Jacob showed. Bad news caused all these problems. But, but they've come to terms with it. They've accepted it. They've accepted it as reality that this is just how it is. But even listen to the words that, that, that Judah recounts to him. <coughs> Jacob said, you know my, my wife bore me two sons. Ouch. Ouch. Right, there's ten other sons there. Standing there listening to him say, I had two, my wife bore me two sons. Ten brothers stood there listening to that, listening to him disrespect their mothers as well. That had to hurt, but they've, they've accepted it. They've gone, well, this is how it is. We have to live with it. This is the reality of, of our father. And Judah predicts his father's death if Benjamin doesn't return. He's saying, I've taken responsibility for Benjamin's safe return. If he doesn't come back, I'm going to be to blame him. And my dad's going to die in misery. He's going to die a miserable death, either on the spot because of grief, He's going to die, or just in the last days of his life, he's going to be in misery until the day he dies. And so we see that, that they've transformed, right? The fact that none of the brothers are, are objecting, none of them have, they're all standing with, Judah's the, the spokesman, but they're all standing behind. They're all standing with him. And we see that their guilt had led to sorrow, which led to repentance, right? They're not the same men who sold Joseph into slavery 20 years ago. They're not the same men. They're standing in solidarity, pleading for the life of Benjamin. And this is what God wants to see in us. This is the kind of transformation that God wants for us. When, when we're sorrowful, when we repent, this is what he wants to see. We see this uh, as the Apostle Paul writes um, to the Corinthians. This is from 2 Corinthians. There's um, probably a letter between 1 and 2 Corinthians that we don't have. Um, that in which Paul, Paul calls them to account on a few things. He calls out a couple things in them, and, and that they, they do repent. And this is him talking about their repentance and their feelings about their, their wrongdoing. This is 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 9-12. through 12. He says, As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point you have proved yourselves innocent in the matter. So although I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the one who did the wrong, nor for the sake of the one who suffered the wrong, but in order that your earnestness for us might be revealed to you in the sight of God. But this is showing just how much they've changed. This reveals how much these brothers have changed. Judas offers himself as a substitute for Benjamin. He's saying, let the boy go back, I will stay. Let the boy go back, I will stay here. I'll stay and be a slave. 
And this is a remarkable transformation for him to do this. This is a remarkable thing for him to offer, right? He, at this point, his reputation is not very good. At this point, Judah's reputation is not very good, right? He, had, he was the one that had come up with the plan to sell Joseph into slavery in the first place. <coughs> right? He's the one who said, wait, let's not kill him, let's sell him. And Joseph knows that. Joseph was down in the pit, but his brothers were right outside, he heard all their conversations. He knows that Judah was the one who said, let's sell him to those traitors that are heading to Egypt. He knows that that's why he's here. And then after that, Judah entangled himself with Canaanites. Remember, he got a Canaanite wife. He got a Canaanite best friend. He became very Canaanite, hanging out with Canaanites, walking away from God's people. And then he infamously impregnated his daughter-in-law, which, I mean, that sounds bad enough right there, but, like, but his only excuse is, well, but I thought she was a prostitute. Yikes! That's not a really, like, you know, that that's, doesn't really help the situation. Right? He, so he's not, he's not doing very well at this point. He's no reputation to speak of. But he does still have, he's got three sons left at home. He's got stuff to, to lose. Right? He's got got things to lose this isn't like his life is worthless and he just well, might as well stay and be a slave he's got three sons at home that he wants to go back to he's got a life there still that, he, that he's he's doing there and but he's transformed here and willing to offer himself as a substitute for benjamin he's become this new creation because of the guilt that he felt the repentance that led to it led to repentance that's what Paul talks about in that passage is it's not feeling bad for what we've done, feeling bad for our sin isn't the point. The point is what does that do? What does that produce in us? And if it produces a sorrow that leads to repentance, meaning I don't want to do that anymore and I want to live for God, I want to follow Him, I want to allow Jesus to transform my heart and give me a new life and I don't want to walk that way anymore, I want to follow Jesus. That's that godly grief that he talks about. The worldly gr- grief is that I've done these things, I'm a terrible person, I'm worthless, I shouldn't live. It, it doesn't go anywhere other than into the pit, right? other than to death. Right? It leads to sorrow and death. So we want to have that godly grief that Judah had here, and, and he becomes this new creation that, that Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We go back to chapter 5 in 2 Corinthians, verses 17 through 19. He says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old had passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. God gives us that possibility of being a new creation through the substitutionary death of Jesus. The substitutionary death and resurrection of Jesus. In the same way that Judah offers himself as a substitute, offers his life for Benjamin's, Jesus actually offered his life for us. Actually gave his life for us on the cross. That through his death and resurrection can be our death and resurrection. That his death can pay for our sin. That we can cast our sins onto him 
and he can pay them for us. We can be free. We can be found guilt-free. We can be found innocent in the eyes of God because of what Jesus has done for us. We only need to accept it. Right? We only need to accept it. We only need to, to take that substitutionary death for ourselves and say, yes, his death is my death. His death pays the price for us. So that's where we leave Judah. Let's put this offer on the table. And if we want to see what happens next, you have to come back next week. <laughs> or read your Bible. Well, either, either of them, really. That's uh, either one. Um, we'll wrap this up with how should we then live? What can we take away from this story? How can we be changed? Here are a couple of possibilities. Number one, recognize and admit, admit your guilt whether, whether or not you were caught. That's a difficult thing for a lot of us that, you know, that we, we want to be, we need, some of them need to be caught in the act versus being willing to go, you know what, God, I have things that nobody knows about. I'm really good. I'm really good at hiding. And so everybody thinks that I'm just actually really good, but I know what I've done. Just because I've never been caught doesn't mean it's not true. So we can admit that guilt whether or not we were caught, or whether or not the things that we're accused of are, are real. We can say, no, you know, I do have things, though. I am guilty. Number two, accept the forgiveness and grace offered by Jesus. Accept the forgiveness and grace offered by Jesus Christ. That's so Accept Him as substitute. Right? Accept His life for yours. Accept His death on the cross for your own. And then lastly, be willing to stand in the gap for those who don't know Jesus as their Savior and Lord. Right? There, there's an element here where Judas stands in the gap for Benjamin and says, no, I will take this on. I will stand in the gap. I will speak up. We have that opportunity as well. We can pray for those that don't know Jesus. We can stand in the gap. We can be the, the person who is access, who by, by whom God has access to their life. Right? There are people that you know that you're the only Christian they know. You're the only person that knows Jesus that they know. That matters. That, that's God's access into their life is through you. Right? He put His Spirit in you so that you can be in their life. And sometimes that's a, that's a long process of just knowing you and seeing your life. They're, they're watching you. They want to know who you are. It doesn't mean you have to be perfect all the time. But it means it matters your interactions with them, how much you bring it up, how much you let it show. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for this word, for this story um, that we are still in the middle of with uh, Joseph and his brothers, God. And I pray for everyone here who has difficult family relationships. They can take hope in, in this, God, that even terrible things, even terrible things that happen like this can be used for your glory, can be... Um, reconciled can be fixed when you're in it god and we pray that that you would enter into our relationships that you would uh, transform us the way that you transform these brothers uh, we all want that god we want to become more like you we pray these things in the name of your son jesus